0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, I welcome Dr. Timothy C. Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary, back to the podcast for the third time. So grateful that he could join us today to talk about his new book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, a resource for catechesis and disciple making. In addition to his book, we talked a little bit about his own faith story, how he was discipled why discipleship is so important for us as individuals and the church today, and how we can incorporate these practices into our minds, hearts, and into the way that we live. If you haven't already, I hope you'll be sure to pick up a copy of Dr. Tennant's book, Foundations of the Christian Faith. It's available in a Kindle version on Amazon or on seedbed.com for a paperback Kindle, any version that you like it, it is on there. So now, let's listen to my conversation with Dr. Timothy Tennant. All right, Dr. Tennant, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today to talk about your book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, a Resource for Catechesis in Disciple Making.
1: Thank you, Heidi. It's great to join you again.
0: Yes, I think this is the third time that you've come back, which I said it before we were recording, but it's quite a compliment when somebody comes back three times. So thank you. <laughs>
1: That's <laughs> If I stay here long enough, I'm sure we'll do the fourth or fifth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're welcome back anytime. So, before we jump into your book, like I said, um, because it is about the foundations of the Christian faith, I'd like to start out by asking you about your own faith experience. How did you first encounter Jesus, and when did he become real to you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Heidi. And I'm just so thankful to God that I grew up in a, a wonderful Christian home with uh Mother and father who loved the Lord, and my mother in particular was very intentional about, um, you know, instructing us in the faith. That was a third of three boys, uh, but despite my mother's good instruction, uh, we we had our own ideas, <laughs> and so we kind of went our own way. But um, when I was a junior in high school, um, I was invited over to a um, a man. He was running a Bible study in his home, and I, I went to the home for the to just to join this group that was going. And the process of that um, time there, um, this was a Baptist layman. Um, he I really heard the gospel. I had a couple of moments in my life. There was one time before that where I was in a, a public setting where I felt my ears were open to hear something. Of course, it resonated with how I was raised. But um, anyway, I, when I was a junior in high school it was when I invited the Lord into my life. And uh, that was a big, obviously, huge moment for me spiritually.
0: For sure. For sure. It's nice to have, I think everyone has kind of that one moment where the stake went in the ground, you know, and then your journey unfolded after that. What was the discipleship process like for you?
1: Well, I had a, um, as I said, a a good upbringing in the church. And my parents were the kind of folks that, you know, the minute the door of the church was open, we were the first ones to step across the threshold. So I had Sunday School Uh, my entire life coming through. I went through all kinds of curriculum type things that were present in uh, high school, in elementary school. And then um, in my early days, I actually went uh, my first uh, five, six years of elementary school, I went to a Christian school. And then later I went to public school, but I was, um, you know, when I actually came to faith, um, I, I was very involved in those days with a a tape ministry that was I know it sounds like antiquated but it was actually cassette tapes that you could or you could you could check off in like an order form and they would mail you the tapes and you listen to them and mail them back uh-huh it was called like River of Life um, ministries or whatever and i literally listened to hundreds of those cassette tapes hundreds on everything about the christian faith wow and uh, that was like I love doing that, and I would just order them three or four at a time, and I did that for years. Um, and so by the time I got to seminary and, or to college, um, you know, I had a lot, of, a lot of knowledge that way. But then I had people in my life, uh, Bob Stamps that you may know because he was here our, on our campus as our, as our chaplain. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, he, he discipled me as a young man, so he was my mentor in the Lord. And so I have several key people on the way. In fact, if you actually look at the book, at the opening of the book, you'll notice it's a very small type. you that inside the, the cover of the book, it actually has a list of people who were vital in my discipleship. I list my mother, Jacqueline Tennant, Clyde Fortner, who's that man I mentioned to you in the Bible study that night, who led me to the Lord, Charles Simpson, who was one of the key leaders in those Tate ministries I mentioned, Chuck Farah was a very instrumental uh, professor in my college, Bob Stamps, and I mentioned others, Gordon Fee, Christy Wilson. These are on seminary days. And Kevin Scott is somebody that I talk to um, every week, even to this day now.
0: Wow. Wow. So what what a legacy of folks that you have. As you were reading that list, I was thinking about the Bible verse. Um, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, and I have a good heritage. And what what a tribute to these folks and for to you to have such such a rich group of your own rich community of folks
1: as yeah, you then so, others. so thankful for um how all those people have poured into my life
0: yeah yeah so you mentioned your discipleship journey continues even today which yeah. i think is important for people to hear about that it's not just as we're in our 20s or teens or something like that but it's a lifelong process right
1: that's right. So when I was doing my doctoral studies at uh, University of Edinburgh, I uh, fell in with this man that was is my pastor, and I never dreamed I would meet him over there. But I met him in Scotland through the remarkable circumstances, and uh, we became very, very good friends. And um, we had some wonderful talks. So on Sunday night, particularly Sunday night, we would spend time together in the Word. And so when I graduated in 1998, I said to Kevin, I said, Kevin, um, we, we, we just can't, it's been so good. We can't stop this. So we said, why don't we just call on the phone every, every, every uh, Sunday afternoon or Sunday night. And so we started that in 1998 and I've done it every week until this past Sunday. i talked to him.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I
1: have a weekly time with a dear brother. We talk about, you know, what's going on, the challenges I'm facing he has his you know challenges and so we, we talk through where we are and uh, pray for each other and we we still have that to this day and i'm 63 years old it still <laughs> goes on
0: <laughs> wow that community is a beautiful thing cuz i'm guessing that's not the only person that you have you know surrounding you to hold each other accountable and help each other on on the discipleship journey
1: well, that's true. I mean, the other obviously really crucial person is my wife, uh, Julie, that you know. And Julie and I spend um, at least an hour together every every single day in prayer and then uh, singing the Psalms and then just discussing scripture. We spend at least an hour, hour and a half every morning. Uh, I get up in the morning around five. I make tea. Uh, Julie comes down. We spend about uh, between five thirty and seven, together in prayer and Bible study, and then, and you know, we'll do at night. If we go to bed. We do. We always uh, choose one hymn uh, that we we look at and sing or whatever before we go to bed at night. So we actually, uh, she's my main discipleship journey person. Is my own yeah. dear wife.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's. I think that's. I don't know. I haven't been married a super long time, but I feel like that's how marriage is supposed to to be. Really, you know. Yeah, it
1: is. It is.
0: Yeah. So, as I mentioned before, your book is called Foundations of the Christian Faith, a resources a resource for catechesis and disciple making. So, why was now the right time for you to write this book?
1: Well, traditionally, the church has had a strong commitment to catechesis uh, and, and discipleship, but in more recent years, unfortunately, especially in the Western world, we've had a, a, a growing kind of minimalistic Christianity. Which basically asked the question, you know, what is the least one has to do to be a Christian? So the result is people were being brought into the church, which is a good thing, of course, but they were not actually brought any further than that. So you basically have people becoming Christians, but not really know what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was really meant to address kind of a growing gap between um, people who maybe experienced some level of justification, but had never really been brought into the fullness of um of christianity and so that's um our founder hc morrison when he his favorite hymn was um on on jordan's stormy banks i stand he actually did not view that crossing the jordan as crossing like going into heaven he viewed it as going into the deeper life the discipled life the catechetical life and so he would call it in sermons to cross over jordan meaning don't just stand on the banks and say you know jesus has forgiven my sins have the victorious life of being victorious over sin and being transformed. So this book is really about helping the church to be um, brought into the real rhythms of the Christian faith, and I follow the traditional way the church has done that through the ages.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, before, I think I would be remiss before we go any further. I mean, of course, we're both familiar with the term catechesis, but for people who may be listening that that term isn't familiar with, familiar for them. Could you give us an idea of what that looks like today?
1: Yeah, the word catechesis comes from uh, two Greek words, and these are words that, that, especially the second word, we'll know, "kata," which is the word for down, but the other word is the word where we get our word echo from, and so it really means to sound down, and the idea was that the, the person who gave the instruction, the one who was being instructed, would echo back the response, and the early catechesis was questions and answers, questions and answers. And so it was meant to be kind of a dialogue between an older Christian and a younger Christian, not necessarily older in years, but older in uh, numbers of years walking with the Lord. And so the bottom line is it's really meant to be a, a conversation or a dialogue between two people or two groups of people. And so that's part of what that is. It's a passing down of the faith. We receive the gospel, we pass it down. And so this this idea is how do we, you know, accurately and faithfully pass down the gospel.
0: hmm Yeah, I liked what you said uh, a minute ago about how uh, the Jordan stormy banks and going into discipleship, taking you into a deeper spiritual life. How does discipleship? Maybe it's a personal example from you, or maybe just in general. How does do discipleship practices and rhythms? help lead us into a more victorious life?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The church, uh, it's amazing. We think about the church, we think about it often as being like people who don't agree about things. But actually, one of the most amazing things about the church's history is that we've not actually had substantial disagreement about the content of catechesis, which is amazing. Because if you look at every strand, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant traditions, and you ask, what did they use to train young people, children, new believers in the faith? It was almost always the same three things. They used the Apostles' Creed, uh, they would use the Ten Commandments, and they used the Lord's Prayer. And the reason they use those three things, because this actually gets to your question, the three things represent um, doctrine, what you need to know, uh, which is essentially the transformation of the mind, the ethics, that's to say, the moral life, you know, the how we're to live the Christian life, and then the practices, what are the rhythms of practice in order to grow as a Christian. So the early church, and to today, you can't neglect any of these. Uh, There are things you just need to know about what is the proclamation of the gospel, but also what it means for our moral life, our ethical life, and then the rhythms it takes to continue growing. So the church focused on that, and so this book actually is, is surrounded around that basic same approach.
0: Mm-hmm. I like what you said about the oral tradition because I picked that up in your, in your writings, definitely, um, and was thinking about how in more ancient times that it was, like catechesis definitely was oral, but even just storytelling, there were, there were very few books. And at one point there were no books. So it was an oral culture and it reminded me of, in Deuteronomy 6, where it talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it commands readers to keep these commands not only in our hearts, but to recite them aloud. And um, so thinking about that, it reminded me of what you were saying in your book. Why do you think it's still so important that we say aloud what we believe, thinking about especially the Apostles' Creed?
1: Well, I— I think, first of all, when you verbalize something, you know, it actually encounters your mind and your, your own ears and the ears of your community. So the church has always believed that the vocalization is important. But I think also it's just helpful in a church. I look at the Apostles' Creed, for example, to be both confessional and aspirational. Because on the one hand, the people there that are confessing what they believe, others may not understand it or know it. But then they realize this is, you know, they're, 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 they're realizing that's what it means. This is what it means to belong to Christ. And so they actually can aspire to become more faithfully in their Christian walk. And I wrote my first little book on the Apostles' Creed uh, some years back. I got letters from all over, emails and letters from all over, people who said some version of this to me. I have grown up in the church all my life and I have recited the Apostles' Creed forever, but I never really knew what it all meant. And so I think a lot of people, you know, encounter the creed. They, they're very familiar with it. I mean, the Nicene Creed, maybe not as much, but the Apostles Creed, very well known in the church. And yet some of the phrases, they never really thought about what they mean or why they're important. So this book tries to, you know, spell that out a bit.
0: I, yes, I I definitely agree. Because thinking about the Apostle, the Apostles' Creed, I have said it my whole life, um, but I never really, if I knew it, it wasn't something that I could have said to you, that this is something that all Christians everywhere believe, and I think that is an amazing thing that there is this this creed that Christians everywhere they don't dispute. It's just it's just how it is, and so saying that over and over is a form of of discipleship and ingraining that into your heart.
1: Amen. It's also, as you said, an amazing point of unity because yes. the church over the whole world, around the world and back through time, affirms this document. It's an amazing thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So as you wrote this book, how do you see readers using it and what type of reader did you have in mind? Well,
1: that's a great question because sometimes I found that you have um, a, a group in mind and sometimes the reality uh, is different than you thought. I, <laughs> We, uh, this book has been published in, in uh, the parts of it in different forms over the years. And so it's been brought together now in one uh, textbook. But we found, um, I get letters from people who say, I'm a homeschool mom and I've, I've used this book or people who say, I've used this at home, you know, uh, with my children or whatever. Um, I've had a lot of pastors who said, I'm using this as a, um, a sermon series. I-, I was especially surprised. Uh, the, the apostles creed i thought it maybe so but the 30 questions especially has been used a lot in sermon series or people say i've used it to for a blog series or whatever but what it was and that's wonderful but it was really designed actually mostly and it's used this way as well but uh for small group um uh, like new members classes or those kind of classes in churches so it is used that way as well so basically of a pastor uh, or a Christian leader, wanted to be a part of a, uh, uh, helping a new group of people come into faith, they would have some guide to go by. And this comes with study questions and all of that. So it enables someone to lead someone through a kind of a systematic uh, introduction to the faith in their doctrine, ethics, and practice.
0: Mm-hmm. How does a proper understanding of and participation in catechesis, reading your book, serve as a foundation of our faith?
1: Well, it, it's it's back to the word catechesis. It's us learning to echo uh, what has been taught by the apostles, and I think today we have a little danger of people who feel like that we have the uh, remit to you know remake the faith or to just change what the Bible has said. And so this actually puts us back in resonance with what the church has said through the history. There's a great phrase that comes from the early church uh, called "Semper ubique ab omnibus." It means what the church has always taught, you know, everywhere by everyone. And it's meaning that despite all of our difference about baptism, about, you know, church government or whatever, despite all of that, there is a core shared confession of the church through the ages. And so this actually gets us in resonance with that. And so that's really, really important because I don't mind disagreeing about a lot of things, but I think it's important that we agree about that, which the church has said. This is, the core, you know, kerygma, the core faith of the church.
0: Mm-hmm. As you see it, what does a return to traditional catechesis look like in the church today?
1: Another great question. I do think it's changed a lot over the years, and there's two ways this book reflects uh, changes. Uh, one is that while we do believe that parents need to take the primary responsibility We think the church today is going to have to take a stronger role and not assume that parents, uh, you know, have this covered at home. A lot more fragmentation in the home life in America, a lot more people that are, you know, just massively busy with all kinds of events and, and just traveling around. And they don't really have the kind of the quiet home life that they had 50 years ago so the church has to pick up the slack and we obviously have to train parents to to train their children but we have to also do this inside the church the other part is that this book uh does a lot more with explaining to a person what is behind these questions so in traditional catechesis it was basically question and answer question and answer uh through the apostles creed the lord's prayer everything but it really involved a lot of rote memorization And so students would learn the answers. They'd be asked the question. They would give a response. But rote memory um, has changed its function in society. And so I think now people uh, need to just actually understand something if they don't say it the exact same way. So this actually, that's the teachers for the uh, material explains what is behind this statement. And they can use their own words, talk about it, whatever. So it's, it's a little more friendly for almost any science school teacher as opposed to the traditional guides, which are a little intimidating if it's all based on memory work.
0: Yeah, for sure. We were talking about the church in America, but you also teach regularly in India and travel, um, you know, widely. As you look at the global church, is the kind of strain from teaching the foundations of the faith and catechesis, is that more a Western culture thing, or do you see it around the globe as well?
1: Well, all over the globe um, and all through time, the church has been reasonably attentive to catechesis. I think it's probably strongest in the Roman Catholic Church in terms of traditional kind of ways it's done. It's taken very seriously there globally. And uh, the Orthodox Church, the Protestant Church, because it's so fragmented, has had less kind of shared practices. And so you have Real differences, what goes on like in a Lutheran church versus a Pentecostal church versus an Anglican church, or whatever. So, you have a lot of differences there. So, I would say in some ways the Protestants um, have a lot to do to kind of formalize this, especially the independent churches today. There's a lot of new churches that are completely independent and they don't have a tradition. They don't have a traditional um, catechesis guide like the Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, all these famous guides. They're just not connected to that tradition. They never heard of it. So this is trying to work with groups that may not have had catechism before. Uh, my experience in India, with the groups that I work with at least, I found that the home catechesis is uh, dramatically better than what I've experienced among families in the West. I mean, dramatically. It's very, very normal in the Indian homes that I've worked with for uh, for 35 years for families to have uh, devotions every night to have instruction before their kids go to sleep. That's very normal in the circles I work with, um, in a way that wouldn't be as common uh, in the West today. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think that's interesting to see, um, to see the the gifts of global Christianity and what we can learn from other cultures and other countries, you know, for Mm -hmm. our own benefit and faith. Um, so I want to get into more of your book because we can't cover all the sections in our podcast. But one section um, talking about the Old Testament, I was thinking about this because last year I did the Bible app and read read the Bible in one year. And that was the first time that I'd ever read the Bible from cover to cover. And so it was really, um, I didn't subscribe to the belief that you know, the Old Testament has no relevance in our life. But if I was going to read the Bible, I picked the New Testament, right? Because that that's where the exciting things happen. Um, but in doing that, I realized kind of the, the relevance and the beautiful story of redemption that's seen all through Scripture. And that was the first—it was really amazing last year, yeah. Dr. Tennant. But, yeah. <laughs> but in your book, you talk about that relationship with the Old Testament— and the New Testament, and it's important to us. Importance to us today. So, can you talk to talk to us about the relationship, the Old Testament's importance, and and I guess why we should read it and its value to us in our faith?
1: Yes, th- this really this part uh, is not a traditional part of catechesis; an added part. So, it's about a fifty page section of the book that you would not find normally in um, a traditional catechesis guide. But this came out of my own experience as a pastor. So. Um, Despite how this may shock you, I haven't always been a seminary president. <laughs> so in my early ministry, I was a pastor of a church, um, and I found, a, and I was working with basically rural people that were farming farming community, a rural part of North Georgia, and they they really did not have a very good relationship with the Old Testament. With a lot of things you said, they would have said the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I I struggled a lot with well, how do I help uh, people in my you know the ordinary pews to understand the old testament and so i finally realized probably the best way to to communicate to them is to say if you understand some basic thing about adam abraham moses and david then you can pretty much understand a lot of the old testament because those four figures are so crucial for the new testament and how we relate to adam abraham moses and david and so this book is really showing how christ fulfills you know, the, the, the aspirations and the realities of each of those. You know, we relate to Adam in a kind of a racial way, the redemption. We relate to, you know, to Abraham as father of faith, et cetera, David, you know, king and priest and so forth. So I'll bring all that out in this section to show the connections of the Old and New Testament, which helps people then to read the Old Testament with more understanding and profitability and even read the New Testament better because a lot of New Testament assumes you know about Adam or Abraham or Moses or David. So it also really helps them understand the New Testament as well.
0: Mm-hmm. How do we see redemption in the Old Testament?
1: well mostly redemption happens all the time but it mostly happens through israel's history uh, so you see redemption happening through the people of God, for example, coming out of Egypt into the promised land so the the movement of God's people from uh, slavery and bondage to the Promised Land is itself one of the primary uh, paradigms of redemption in the New Testament. So Christ delivers us from slavery into the Promised Land. So the the, the Jewish experience, uh, not just with that, but also with blood sacrifice, you know, all these things that we talk about in the in the cross were already foreshadowed, you know, in the in the the blood sacrifices. And we know now from the New Testament that when an Old Testament person sacrificed bloods blood of a, like a bull or a goat, it was anticipating Christ's sacrifice of his blood on the cross. And therefore they are saved by Christ just the way we are, but theirs was anticipatory, ours is fulfillment. But we're all saved by Christ. And so you can see the link and how everything ultimately points to Christ through both sides of the redemptive story.
0: Mm-hmm. I really liked, um, as I read the Bible in a year last year, seeing that redemption because at some point, point. You hear people say, oh, the Old Testament is all about God's wrath and judgment and people dying. But in seeing the whole story, I really did see that redemption and how Israel would stray and God in his mercy would, he had a plan like from the beginning to bring them back and redeem them then and ultimately redeem them. And I it was a beautiful thing, like you were saying.
1: Amen. Amen. That's, that's so true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So another section was the Ten Commandments. What is the role of the Ten Commandments in our lives today as New Testament Christians?
1: Yeah, this is a part that is sometimes misunderstood because uh, you know Paul used the word law differently, but the Wesleyan view in particular is that uh, Christ is the new law giver, and so when Christ fulfills the law, it doesn't mean that he takes away the moral mandates of, of the law. So. What we actually find is the Ten Commandments are taken in the New Testament and they're deepened. So, for example, you know, the, uh, "Thou shalt not commit murder." Jesus says, "Well, don't even be, and through the Gospel, don't even be angry." You know, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." Don't look at a woman with lust. You know, these are all these things are actually deep in the law. So, when you deal with catechism of children, it's still very helpful to start out with the concrete realities about you know stealing and lying and honoring your parents keeping Sabbath, these are very basic things that can be taught to any child. And then as they come into the experience of Christ, uh, which, of course, in the Apostles' Creed, then they will eventually be able to realize the power to obey the, you know, to live righteously. And so one of the challenges, I think this is the, one of the reasons why I'm a Wesleyan, uh, is that we believe that uh, Christ is not just interested in forgiving us, but actually transforming us in how we live. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just justification, it's sanctification, it's holiness. And so this whole section is about, you know, the, this helping someone to begin on the road to holiness. Mm-hmm. And they, they even though there's 613 commands in the Old Testament, it's basically believed that all of the 613 are subheadings of these 10. Oh, wow. And so these are like the 10 main headings out of which all the moral law flows. And so if you start with these 10, you know, you're kind of getting yourself in the basic foundation of the moral life in terms of basically, as you know, the first half of the commandments is loving God, second half loving your neighbor, which Jesus mm-hmm. says, that's what it's all about. Love God, and <laughs> love your neighbor. This is the starting point to that.
0: Yeah. Wow. I had never heard that, that the 10 were the, were kind of the headings for all the 613 to follow in Leviticus and whatnot. That's, that's really interesting. How is the first commandment, because I know you said this in your book, how is the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, foundational to all the rest of the commandments?
1: Well, yeah, part of the, the, the commandments is an orientation um, of what it means to be to have the oriented life. And Wesley picks it up on this in his own life and uh, work, basically saying that the Christian life begins with having your heart oriented toward God and who he is. So the Ten Commandments begins by saying, you know, before we get into anything that we are to do, we first begin with who he is. You know, he is the God of the universe Mm -hmm. and he is the creator. And so the whole thing begins with establishing God as the center of the whole redemptive plan as our creator and redeemer and sanctifier. So that's why I say that first commandment in some ways is the one that orients you and empowers you
0: for the rest. Yeah. I had never thought about it that way. that's really that's a really beautiful and enlightening thing. so as we as we talk about your book, and you mentioned earlier that catechesis is kind of I think I'm quoting uh, paraphrasing you correctly that it is the doctrine, the ethics and practices that help us grow in our faith. So how do we take what we know in our lives and the ethics for how we believe to live and marry everything together? so that we practice, in quotes, our, our lives well?
1: Yeah, this, I think, is a great question. I think the distance between your head, your heart, you know, your, your life, your actions is an important one. And I think, in my understanding, in my own experience as a Christian, uh, this is only possible through uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We, have to, we cannot do it on our own. So otherwise, it's just a, basically discipleship for much of the church today is basically sin management, you know, you're managing sin in people's lives. So the question is, why do we, why is that the the kind of orientation today? We're just managing sin. And the reason is because the gravity, there's a pull towards sin that still happens in our lives. So part of what the Wesleyan message says is that when you encounter Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you have this uh, sanctifying experience with God in Christ, then there's actually a, gravity shift or rather than being pulled towards sin you're being actually pulled toward god and toward his holiness so my my life even though when i became a christian i still felt this pull toward my old life i still i actually still long to sin i i I would say sin was still my my secret lover
0: Mm -hmm. and so even though
1: you may be victorious for a while there are certain things you would go back and do because you really wanted to sin and so what happened was when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I had an orientation in my life so that now my deepest longing is to love him. And you it's actually an unbelievable transformation because all your life you've only known the pull the other direction. And then you have this pull now a new direction, and you realize there's no way that comes from inside of you. That's the work of God. And and Wesley never believed in sinless perfection. It doesn't mean we never sin, but it does mean that the orientation has changed. And I think there's just a like a holy gravity that pulls you in a different direction. And that, to me, is the the power behind all of this is the fact that we believe in Trinitarian salvation. It's not just the that Jesus who justifies us. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us and really does reorient our hearts. And that's a message the church really needs to hear today.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I'm starting to get preaching now here.
0: (laughs) Well, we're here for it. (laughs) I think it's an important point that you made about how sanctification isn't a sinless salvation, nor is an excuse to sin, but it reorients our hearts. Because growing up, that that was a point that really confused me a lot about what sanctification meant. Because I knew my own heart and everything, even after I had had that experience. And I was like, but I still, you know, mess up, you know. And so I really appreciate that point that you made.
1: Absolutely. I mean, th- even today, just today, I I had to write a note to someone that I I, I said something I shouldn't have said. And I, I said, I'm really sorry for that. The good thing about it is, is that I, I, I felt the Lord, you know, orient my heart to say, you know what, yeah. um, that wasn't the right thing to say. And so immediately, you know, said, I'm sorry. It doesn't mean that we don't sin, but we we don't have a pull to want to do that. Right. We, what we want to do is live right with everyone that we come in contact with and, all, and of course, before God. And that, that, to me, is the amazing thing about the work of the Spirit.
0: Yeah. As my dad said when he would talk to me about it, he was like, it doesn't mean that I don't mess up. I just have a good reverse gear to back <laughs> it up. And I I feel that that check that I know and I need to go make things right now. Exactly. Yeah. So, at the end of each of the larger sections of your book, like the Apostles' Creed, for example, there's a hymn written by your wonderful wife, Julie Tennant. And they're, of course, beautiful. So, what was Julie's role in writing this book?
1: Well, th- yeah, this was an. Uh, I, I really wanted my wife, Julie, to really be a part of this because I said, first of all, she's been my um, the, the word by was catechumen, you know, the person who is catechized, my uh, catechumen partner. All these years. But I, uh, I also felt like it was so important to root catechesis into the context of worship. Mm. That ultimately, all of this is not about learning stuff or memorizing stuff. It's really about what it means to worship God. And I think sometimes in our tradition, especially, we think about loving God as something that happens in our heart or our, our emotions. But actually, it's all that we are. We learn about things in our, in our heads and we practice things all this is loving god and so i really felt like the uh, rooting this in worship would help the book be just oriented right and mm-hmm. since uh, i don't really have any gifts in music <laughs> my wife is so gifted in that area i asked her if she'd write a hymn for each of the sections and she was uh, and she did some great work here it's just a real value of the book or the hymn <laughs>
0: Well, they are beautiful. And I worth the price of the book. <laughs> I love that. I never thought about because I also grew up in the church and feel like I had a good theological foundation for how to live, but I never thought about catechesis as being worship and how I live my whole life is a form of discipleship and an act of worship mm. to God. Wow, Dr. Tennet. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It is. It is. So as we wrap up the podcast, I feel like there's a great, great lot more that we could talk about. There's the Eastern Kentucky coming out in me a little bit. Is there anything else um, that you'd like to mention that I didn't know to ask you?
1: Well, the other the, there was two parts the, of the catechesis, which part from the regular, one of which you mentioned and one which you did. Not, I'll just mention it. Uh, the oh, first, please. of course, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament section. That is... Uh, not often done. The la- this is the last part of the book on the body under the ordinances, because normally that section of catechesis involves instruction, the baptism and the Lord's supper, and then the Lord's prayer. But I have a section here on the body. And this is because I felt like that the body is under a particular attack today, and what it means to have a Christian view of the body. And so I've argued that uh, part of what we need to do today in our training people in the faith is to orient them toward seeing their bodies in a Christian way. Mm-hmm. I mean, women especially are regularly shamed in the media by where their bodies are portrayed, you know, and billboards and, and advertisements and commercials and all this. And so we talk about this, the way we can help our children to be raised up, to think about their bodies better because there's so many ways our bodies today are under attack. And so that, That's a part of the book, which I think is more for the contemporary uh, world.
0: Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. So I lied to you, Dr. Tennant. I said I didn't have any more questions. And I have one more here that I'd like to ask you. All right. For someone who is listening to this podcast and is either beginning their discipleship journey or wants to continue it, other than buying your book, because that is a good resource um, for a new or even a seasoned Christian, what would you say is for someone who wants the, to take the next step in their discipleship journey?
1: Well, it really depends on where they are, but I would say, uh, Heidi, actually what you've already testified to is the, the best first step before you buy my book or anything else. I would do the daily Bible reading plan. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great way. If you read basically three chapters a day, uh, three and a half chapters, you read through the Bible in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done it many, many times. It's a, it's a great thing to do. Obviously, the other thing is starting a practice of daily prayer. Uh, As you probably know, they did a study a while back uh, on some of these big mega churches and said, what caused people to grow? And these are churches that had like endless programming. And they found out, they spent, by the way, $2 million in this study to find out people grew by two things, prayer and Bible study. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, wow, I could have told them that before they uh, did the study. Yeah, they could have sent that check to you, right? That's <laughs> Asbury. That's right. So I think there's a lot of these practices, which, you know, I know when I was in college, I just decided, I'm, I, even though I felt so busy, I couldn't breathe, you know, so with classes, et cetera, I am going to get up in the morning and spend and you know, begin the day with the Lord in prayer and Bible study. I've been doing that since I was probably 17 years old. Wow. Every morning. Wow, and so, I know. And so I think it's uh, great. Now, granted, you know, when we had children, young children, we weren't able to do things together the way we do now. You know, we've had different ups and downs about timing and all with us together. But in my personal life, um, I've made a priority to uh, get up and spend time in the Lord with prayer. And I know some people are nighttime people can do at night. I'm more of a morning person. But Mm -hmm. you need to find some time that's sacred to just sit still before the Lord. Mm hmm. Um, I also found singing is a very powerful catechesis because singing puts the words into your heart. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not much of a singer, but I like to sing uh, before the Lord. He doesn't sing to mine, my voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love uh, it. Anyway, uh, those are things that are helpful, I think. Um, you know, I have a Bible, a hymn book, and some godliness. My, my wife and I have been uh, singing psalms every morning since uh, 2012. Wow! So it's been ten years now. We've sung a psalm every morning for ten years. Wow! And even if I'm traveling, we do it over the phone uh, because it's a big part of my own, our own catechesis. uh, So we'll uh, we'll we'll sing a psalm, talk about it, and then we'll read other other scriptures and pray. But we always have a psalm. The psalms have been a really important part of catechesis. We could do a whole (laughs) other. podcast on that one. because
0: Maybe we should. You could come back a fourth time. I I think
1: that Psalms are are really, really important for growth, but it's another another time, another topic.
0: Well, I can't let you go without asking why the Psalms.
1: Well, the Psalms are kind of the grand central station of the Bible. Uh, the, The Psalms are where the whole Bible meets. I mean, it's amazing that God put a prayer book in the center of the Bible. And so this was Jesus' prayer book, uh, the Psalms, uh, of course, are quote endlessly the Old Testament, and then the New Testament endlessly quotes the, the Psalms, right? So the Psalms really becomes kind of the nexus which brings the whole Bible together. And so um, I, I just don't feel like I've had a really good day as I spend a good bit of time in a Psalm. So mm-hmm. that's part of what I think is important. But we can discuss it more another yeah. time.
0: <laughs> Next time. <laughs> I like how you're baiting the hook there, Doctor Tennant.
1: Yeah. <laughs> go back to my fourth time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm here for it. Um, So I I don't think I should tell people anymore that I'm on my last question because I have at least one more I'd like to ask you. and We have a little bit more time. So so when you said that um, you'd been studying God's word, you know, as a practice since you were 17, I'm curious what you know about God now that you didn't know then. I'm sure there's a great many things as you've grown, but like if one thing stands out to you. It's
1: a great question. Um, I guess the thing I have learned the most in maybe more recent years is that things I used to run away from, like running away from pain, especially, or, or things that are difficult, I finally realized that um, the the real walk with God is to is to embrace those things and not to run from them. our culture is really based a lot on getting away from pain and suffering but actually the uh, the cross is the center uh, suffering is at the center of our faith and so i think if we realize that christ is suffering um at the center of the of the universe um, and we want to be united with christ we 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 actually get united with his death and resurrection Hmm. it's a part of our whole christian journey is about learning what it means uh, to die in fact in daniel when the the Meshach and Shirk and Abednego are delivered from the fiery furnace, they respond, the, the unbelievers respond, there's no God that does that. And I, I, for years, I took it as meaning simply that, uh, yeah, I don't know of any God that delivers people out of a fiery furnace, but what what I think it's also saying is that, as you know, the story, God walked into the fiery furnace. Mm
0: -hmm. No God
1: does that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the whole cross. And so I think part of, um, my whole Christian journey is about being reoriented to understand the place of suffering, pain, difficulty, challenges in ways that um, early on I, I just viewed the Christian uh, faith much differently than I do now. And yeah. that's because I've just been in time with Him.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because um, when I interviewed uh, Reverend Tish Harrison Warren, she was talking, the Anglican priest, she was talking about pain and in reading her book because I try to avoid pain too. I don't, you know, I would rather not deal. And, but she said something that resonated with me and I think relates to what you were saying. And it was talking about the cross and redemption and resurrection. And as long as, as long as things are not right, the story's not over. And I was like, oh, okay. Like there's so much hope in, in Mm -hmm. that and like learning to To see Jesus as suffering with us too, yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay, Dr.
1: I also love how she her writings back to Trish Warren, but I think she helps helped me a lot on the whole quotidian mystery and and not separating life between sacred and secular. You know, where you're making up beds or washing dishes or mowing the grass or changing the oil in the car. Mm -hmm. You know, all those things. She. She puts those in the liturgical rhythms, which I think is itself catechetical. I, I really do. I think uh if I could write another section of the book, I would write it about how we understand the daily, you know, kind of stuff of life. But she wrote a great book on that, so I don't need to do it. But <laughs> she's got some good insights.
0: Well, Doctor Tena, I think now it's safe to say this is the last question that we ask everyone who comes on the show. So this is your third time answering it because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast. What is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now?
1: Well, as I said, the one practice right now is um, is psalm singing. I think it's a great practice. Uh, we have a um, metrical Psalter that we put out that's available in Seabed as well. And uh, it's also available just actually on psalms.seabed.com for free. And you can uh, learn to sing the Psalms. uh, It guides you. But it's it's a great practice for thriving in the Lord.
0: Yeah, for sure. And for those listening, we'll link to Dr. Tennant's books, especially his new one and the psalms.seabed.com that he just mentioned. So you can access all that in the show notes. So Dr. Tennant, this conversation has been such a delight. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so very much.
1: Thank you, Heidi. It's been great to be with you.
0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Tennant. What a treat to have the president of the seminary take the time to chat with all of us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and learned something that will help you grow in your own faith and help you as you pass your faith on to others. If you see Dr. Tennant, be sure to thank him so much for being part of our podcast today. And as always, you can follow at Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.